This is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Get along down the road. We got a long, long way to go. Scared to live, scared to die. We ain't perfect, but we try. Get along. Brendan, so it's Sunday, November 15th. Um, a lot has happened in the past week, but at the same time, not a lot has happened in the past week. So I guess with that, you know, what are we talking about? Yeah, well, since we last recorded, we have a new president. It's officially unofficial yet. I mean, it's still like you said, it's, we're in some ways we're in the same place, but in other ways, it does look like we're, we're moving forward. At least some parties are. Uh, and we will talk about the progress that we have made or not made over the past week in terms of the presidency at the end. But the main focus of this episode is going to be about the coronavirus and the United States response to that over the past six months. So we were, you know, banding about doing our normal, like talking about ideas and things that we might talk about in the episode. And I said to you, you know, it's kind of ironic that we started this podcast in a quarantine due to COVID-19. And we've done seven episodes. We've been recording for several months at this point, and we haven't mentioned it really at all in the podcast. So I was like, we should at some point devote some time to it. And then you said, well, I think it would be good to do it this week. And then the height of all ironies, um, if you're listening out there, Ricky and I, for the first time, are recording this on Zoom because just yesterday I was in contact with someone who was in contact with someone that had COVID. So uh, we are not recording live. I think it's, you know, you know, knock on wood that everything turns out okay, but I think it's almost fitting in some ways that our first podcast on Zoom is going to be about COVID and we're doing it on Zoom due to complications from COVID. <laughs> I, I think it's, yeah, I, I, I think there's, there's no way that we could have gone through this entire um, re- recording session without, without having some complications from, from the coronavirus um, as it is sort of... Uh, atop of everybody's minds but you know to your point it's it's been so so front of mind for so many people that in many ways it kind of drifts to the back and it it just becomes a part uh of sort of the daily uh the daily grind and you stop uh really understand or stop thinking about how it how it's impacting your life and then of course something like this happens yeah but it it is kind of wild to that point where it's you know and this is just how maybe it's the new cycle or maybe it's just how you know people kind of cope with things in general where you know in march and maybe in april and may it was it just dominated you know every conversation you had every interaction whether in person or virtual and then you know i I think it has to at some point like drift to the back of your mind because you i mean you can't spend six months obsessing over something like this it wouldn't be a healthy way to live and i think we'll, we'll get into this and how like the kind of you know quieter side effects that this pandemic has had on us as individuals and us as a society. Um, but yeah, I think it's appropriate that, that we talk about it and, and continue to bring it back to the forefront. It's, it's easy to get lost. Uh, you know, once, you know, the George Floyd, you know, murder happened in, in, in May and all the black lives matter movement that kind of came to the forefront over the summer as, as well it should have. Uh, and then, you know, we got into, the, the election season. And then that's what dominated the last few months again, as well, it should have, but 
this whole time, the backdrop for the whole time has been, you know, coronavirus raging across our country. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I guess with that, I did want to, um, I think some, something that people were sort of glued to at the beginning in, in uh, mid-March, early April is kind of the nightly news breakdown of like, where are we with the numbers? And then eventually the numbers started getting so staggering um, that sort of hard to keep track of. And I, and I don't know how you feel about it, but personally I had sort of I'd stopped really checking in, uh, you know, the, the big numbers, how many cumulative deaths have we had, uh, something that I'd sort of uh, on a cursory basis kept tabs on, but um, the day-to-day uh, things, I, I, I really started to, to tune those out. Right. It's that infamous Stalin line, right? Like, you know, an individual death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, right? And yeah. that's where it becomes like at the beginning when it seemed like, you know, we were really getting these stories of these people that were dying and it was tragic. And that doesn't mean that, you know, 245,000 deaths later that each one of those isn't tragic. But again, this is like a, a human coping mechanism where you just can't kind of comprehend the scale of the devastation and tragedy when you hear numbers, like what the numbers I think you're about to present. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I guess I, I want to caveat this by saying um, two things, certainly not an expert in this field. Most of the data that I'm going to talk about comes either from the CDC or has been sort of reported uh, through the WHO or from the CDC to the New York Times, that kind of thing. Um, trying to stick to major news publications that I feel like are still uh, doing a fairly decent job, at least objectively reporting some of the numbers. And then the other caveat being that, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what the, the exact definition of data is, but uh, we're going to go with just sort of like a collection of factual information, but really um, it's highly dependent on kind of the context um, that you provide to help someone make sense of it. Um, so the, you know, obviously the staggering numbers are, are kind of one thing that we hear. Um, and I'm going to go through those in a second, um, but I'm going to try and tie those to, to some other statistics around. Um, so, you know, you'll hear things about excess death rates, um, you know, where we are on a per capita basis, uh, how we're sort of faring kind of against the rest of the world. So trying to provide, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say like to add a third caveat, just to make sure that no one puts too much emphasis on what we're, the numbers we're about to say yeah, yeah. is that through really no one's fault is that the numbers have changed over the course of time as scientists and data collectors have learned more about the virus and how it affects people. And so, you know, data that we may have heard in March is different, you know, necessarily so and in a good way that data that we heard in July and now in November. So I think, like you said, we're going to do the best we can with what we consider kind of the best statistics out there. But this does, I don't think either of us is trying to claim that this is like the end all be all, you know, either one, the statistics that we're saying, or certainly our analysis of it. Yeah, yeah. True that and and of course the the numbers are are changing all the all the time so this is is really a point in time but given uh, given all those all caveats those <laughs> right, right. Um, so so where are we in in the U S so we've got um, it's November fifteenth uh, and we're at eleven million plus cases two hundred and forty five thousand plus um, deaths we are recording a daily record of new cases, 180,000, I think it was 186,000 as of yesterday. Um, Globally, uh, 
the world is recording about 630,000 cases per day. So um, I, I did some of this math ahead of time. This is not mental math. That's about 30% of new cases are um, still being registered in the U.S. <clears throat> now, of course, uh, the, tr the Trump line is we have so many cases because we're doing so much testing. And I think it would be difficult to look at sort of the, the number of deaths per day and not actually agree with that to a degree. Um, you know, we have heard over time that some of the uh, therapeutics have gotten better. The hospitals are a little bit more equipped. They have more experience with it. So they are able to sort of better manage and perhaps reduce some of the mortality uh, rates Re, re, uh, with respect to COVID, but then also, you know, we're testing a lot more people. So people who had been asymptomatically spreading it and had been instructed specifically, don't come in if you don't have symptoms to get a test. Um, those folks are now getting tested on a more regular basis. Um, so these are, you know, certainly true things, but uh, should not hide from the fact um, that uh, the U.S. far and away exceeds every other country in the number of in the number of cases and in the number of deaths. Um, that context I was talking about. So the top four countries: the U.S., Brazil, India, and Mexico. Um, the U.S. has two hundred and forty-five thousand deaths uh, and three hundred and thirty million people in the country. Um, India and Mexico combined. Um, have about 230,000 deaths and 1.5 billion people. So they have five times the number of people and about 15,000 fewer recorded deaths. Of course, you can make some claims that probably India and probably Mexico are not accurately tracking the number of deaths that are specifically related to COVID. But you know, if you're looking at that gulf, uh, 5x is a huge number. Rate of hospitalizations for uh, Black uh, Americans and Hispanic and Latino Americans is roughly four times the rate of uh, their white counterparts. Um, <clears throat> and among the 240,000 plus deaths, 60,000 of those are located in California, New York, and Massachusetts. Um, and so there is a lot of, there's a lot to dig into uh, geographically, demographically, as to how this is kind of playing out. And I think a lot of it is timing as well. Um, and so before I toss it over to you, I think what we are seeing today, mid-November, is the much higher rate of case increases in the middle part of the country, um, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Utah, places that had voted heavily for Donald Trump in this past election are really now starting to see some of those waves of increasing cases that had really just hobbled New York and California in the early part of the spring. Um, <laughs> in my typical fashion, I covered like 50 different things, um, but I had a lot to say. So take what you want. Yeah, that's a staggering amount of information uh, from you, but also just the staggering numbers to think of in general. And I guess, you know, my reaction to all of that is that there, it just provides so many questions, right? There are no answers to it. And even though we seem to be getting closer to um, a scientific answer in response to the virus, you know, politically, societally, I think it raises a lot of questions, right? So it's undeniable that, I mean, the numbers don't lie here, that the United States has been far more affected and infected than any other country in the world. And, and I mean, you have to turn a critical eye to us you know, our, our systems of government and us as individuals in society 
of like, why, why is that? And not that I, I have answers to that. I think there are, there are many prongs to it. I guess I'll focus on two. One, the government response or, you know, really lack thereof uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think was, was devastating. And like you had briefly acknowledged earlier, I do think there are legitimate, you know, ways to view, you know, how to handle this virus differently. Uh, but I think we can fairly objectively say that the United States federal government did not have really any sort of coordinated national response to this virus. They were real caught like woefully unprepared. And it would be naive to think that that didn't have a huge impact, particularly at the beginning, but even you know six months later, the effect that it's still having now. So I think that's one aspect that we should definitely talk about. And then two, I think there's a not insignificant factor of the United States societally, like our beliefs in the rights of the individual and, and freedom of choice and that I don't want to be dictated to by governments, where particularly, you know, more repressive regimes are able to shut things down. Like, I mean, let, let's look at China in particular, where it's, it starts, the virus starts out, they lock everything down. No one is allowed to leave. If you are sick, you are immediately placed into, you know, a quarantine center away from every, all other individuals. If you die, you die, but you're not going to infect anybody else. And I wouldn't want to live in a society like that, but it's also fair to say that that was pretty effective in, you know, locking down the virus, right? And when you have a government that controls so much of society, so much of people's lives, yeah, you can better address, you know, outbreaks like this because you don't care about individual freedom or, I mean, I would argue really individuals at all. Like your, your goal is to preserve the, you know, the government and the society where the United States is as, you know, maybe the country, the farthest on the end of that spectrum of we're not going to have the government tell us what to do. We're going to live our lives. And so if we don't want to do certain things that might be beneficial to our neighbors and to our towns and cities, you know, the government doesn't have any right to do that. I'll do it if I want. But so I think it's the kind of the dueling, those are the two kind of dueling narratives in my mind of the governmental response, but also like the individual response. Yeah. I, I think that that is, um, you know, when, when sort of reasonable people look at the two approaches to this virus, um, from a policy and from like a government action standpoint, I think exactly what you said, um, you know, you have the sort of the far, the heavy hand of the government in, in kind of what, what China did in, um, sort of mandating lockdowns and, uh, really clearing the streets and shutting down all the businesses <clears throat> and, and really having a, uh, a prescriptive approach where they're saying, you know, this is exactly what's going to happen. You're going to do exactly this. And, and there's no, uh, and, and, that, and that, and that's really just it. And then the other approach is, um, where you would have thought we might have arrived at, which would have been like these, you know, a government response that's more akin to we're trying to educate the population on what's happening. Um, give them the information that they need to make the right choices um, and, and really hope that they do so. I think, um, where the Biden administration is going to struggle and, and the real failure of the Trump administration was that rather than, um, rather than even present sort of the factual case and, and explain what was going on, um, they went the extreme opposite and started to say that nothing was going on 
or that it's not a big deal or, you know, we have 12 cases today, tomorrow we'll have zero and this will all blow over. And when it gets warm, you won't have to worry about this. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's, it would be hard to argue that, that this administration was sort of favoring um, an approach that was about personal liberty because still in many ways, they just really sowed the seeds of doubt that this is something that needed to be taken seriously. Um, so that's, that's kind of one thing I would argue. And I think we're, we're, we're sort of drifting into the politics section of this, which, which I think is appropriate. I would argue that, uh, personal freedom is something that we obviously value here in America a ton, but it is not to say that it is an absolute. We frequently look to the government to put, uh, sort of restrictions on personal freedom where our, um, our own exercise of our personal freedoms can impede someone else's exercise of their personal freedom. So this is probably not like the best analogy, but what I was thinking about is uh, speed limits on highways, right? Like everybody has a car that could drive 120 miles per hour. The reason that we don't let everybody drive 120 miles per hour is that likely by doing that, you know, you may crash or you may cause somebody else to crash. Um, and that's, you know, we sort of collectively agree that even though I as an individual could do this and I might want to do this, it is okay for the government to kind of step in and say, hey, buddy, maybe maybe not so fast. Um, and really, <clears throat> you know, some of the things that people have been asking about from a federal standpoint, besides some type of actual coordinated effort where we could talk about resources and planning and how to sort of, yeah, figure out uh, you know, interstate travel and things like that was, was mainly just a mask mandate, um, and some requirements for, for social distancing. So I think like to say, not, not that you were suggesting this, but, um, it, it has been suggested that kind of the, the only two options here are a do nothing or B lock everything down. seems a bit absurd. It's classic, right? It's the classic black and white that, you know, Trump's good for the economy and for do, do, doing nothing about the pandemic and Biden's for, you know, health and locking everyone down and the people lose their jobs. Like Trump's like, if you die, you die. And Biden's like, if you lose your job, you lose your job. Right. Which neither of which are, are really true, but that's kind of the, certainly the options that we were presented by the other, the, the opposing sides during the presidential election. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess to give Biden some credit, like, to, if you lose your job, you lose your job, but potentially we have some options for you. Whereas like <laughs> on the Trump side, if you die, that's kind of it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's obviously true. And we've talked about this before that, you know, life is the, the most valuable thing that we all have. I, I think you and I agree on that. I think majority of people would agree on that. I do think you would get some pushback from some segments of our population that would say, really that freedom is the most important thing I have. And my ability to go out and, and earn a living is a, is a big part of my freedom, or even my ability to go out and, you know, participate in society as, as I wish. I mean, I think to your, your speed limit point is, is well taken, but I think a lot of the pushback was not that you have to you know, limit yourself to 60 miles an hour, is that you have to limit yourself to 20 miles an hour, or you can't even drive your car at all. Right. And if those were the limits that government was imposing on us because they thought there were too many car accidents, 
I think you would have gotten a lot more pushback. So I, I think, yeah, I, I, again, I don't think you're saying that that's necessarily what we should do. And you're more advocating a, a middle ground approach, but I do think that some of the you know civil liberties that some governors and some states have taken away have gone too far, in my opinion. And on the other hand, what other governors are pretty much like, well, do what you want, and now you're kind of seeing you're reaping what you sow. Uh, yeah, and to, to be fair to everybody in this situation is we're we're quarterbacking this. You know, this is like the Tuesday morning quarterback, right? Like, you know, this is 2020 hindsight of there's so many things that I think President Trump should have done differently, that Governor Baker should have done differently. And we could, Mayor Walsh, like we could go down the list, we could go across the country. But these were people reacting in real time imperfectly. Uh, I think it's fair to criticize them because they're in positions of power you know, to deal with situations like this. But there, there was no perfect response and there is no perfect response. So I do want to say, like, as I criticize, you know, some leaders and, and you do the same, it's in some ways it's, it's, it's really hard because we've never, no one's ever experienced anything like this. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and I think, you know, sort of the democratic line that uh, Obama had sort of put in place, um, some task force to kind of look at this. I, I think, I think, you know, that shouldn't be completely dismissed. Um, but it's certainly fair to say that, you know, this is something that is completely new. Um, and the scale and, and sort of the exact, you know, the fact that it's extremely contagious, but also has a relatively high degree of mortality. Um, that combination is not something that we've dealt with really, obviously, since the Spanish flu, uh, of 1918. Um, you know, but I, I, but I digress a little bit as I frequently do. Um, I, I guess to, to, to bring it back, you, you know, obviously nobody had the, the exact, uh, response, but we saw a, a pretty wide variety of responses. You can argue pretty much necessarily because there was no unified federal response, which many other countries sort of opted for. Um, but I think it's, it is worth probably diving into a little bit, kind of the, the red states and blue states um, divide here. I don't know if you want to kick that off. It's a mystery, I suppose, just how all this thing goes. But there'll be crowds and there'll be shows. And there will be light after dark. Someday we aren't six feet apart. Yeah, so I do think it's like a, a brief like interlude here. Look, I wish we had had a bigger federal response. And even if that federal response was to kind of some of the things that you were saying earlier is like a collective stockpiling of personal protective equipment, right? And in more discussion and convenience of governors of how to regulate interstate travel or, you know, at the, certainly at the beginning, like international travel or you know, some kind of basic baseline things that we believe that every community should be doing, no matter what their COVID situation is at this point in time, knowing or, you know, believing that it could spread rapidly as, as it has. And so I wish I had seen more from this current administration, which, you know, quite frankly, their, their response was to turn it over to the states. And while I disagree with that personally, I do think there's, you know, some argument for that we have a federalist system of government where, well, 
the, you know, we all fall under this branch of the national government that each state really governs itself in a lot of ways. And when the coronavirus was raging in New York City and Massachusetts and the Northeast in general, and wasn't at all out in North Dakota or Iowa or Wisconsin or the Midwest, right? Like, you know, having to require people in Iowa to do the same thing as people in Massachusetts didn't necessarily make a lot of sense. Uh, and so, like, I, I kind of get where, it, you know, the, the Trump administration was wanting to uh, empower governors to you know, decide what's best for their own states. I think there is an argument to make, again, wish we had, would have had more for the national level, but you know, turning it over to the, the states is certainly consistent with you know, the government that our founders set up. Uh, with that said, and you acknowledge this, is that states handled it very differently and have gotten very different results. Uh, and I think we can talk about that. I would love to hear your take on the kind of the different uh, you know, methods that states have gone about addressing this, this issue, uh, this crisis, really. Uh, but you mentioned earlier that it was interesting how COVID affected or didn't affect the election, right? In, in the sense that you know, this has been an absolute disaster Really, I mean, this, without, you know, caveats there, it's been an absolute disaster Unmitigated, for six months. And at some, at whenever there are national disasters, it often, you know, does and should fall at the feet of the current administration. Like, they should have handled it better. And I don't think there's a lot of, you know, arguments to be made that they handled this well. Um, but I, I heard something interesting and love your thoughts on it. Well, I think it was Van Jones again. I've, I've referenced him like every episode now. I uh, was saying, you know, maybe we on the left felt that this was a referendum on COVID, on the handling of the public health crisis. And so 74 million people, again, let, let's pretend, you know, Donald Trump, the person, you know, all of the things that have happened over the four years, they, let, let's take all of that out of the equation. You know, the socialist defund the police stuff, I'll take that all off the table. If this was strictly a referendum on COVID, the left would have said, well, I don't see how anybody could vote for four more years of this current administration. They have let millions of people become affected and hundreds of thousands of people died at a rate far higher than any other country, let alone any other democracy around the world. On the other hand, the right sees this as a referendum on COVID and on the handling of the economy that was happening by the left here. And you're shutting down our, our jobs, our ability to make a living, provide for our families, our ability to exercise our personal liberties. So you could have seen across the spectrum, have seen this election as a referendum on COVID, but actually just seen it in really different ways. And I thought that was a kind of a really you know, interesting thought exercise. And again, that's not like, it's not like we had 145 million people out voting just on COVID, but you could go in being like, that's the thing I care about the most. And I think, you know, something like 25, 30% of voters said, this is my number one issue, but you could be split on why it's your number one issue. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would probably take that back largely to the, to the demographic split and how COVID has affected Americans and geographic split in where it has affected Americans. Um, I think for once you said a lot in, in that last segment that yeah. I wanted to touch on a couple of different things. Um, so before I get into to kind of my, my hindsight, you know, as, as we're doing sort of the, the hindsight is 2020, but, but I had asked you like a number of times during those debates, you know, when Biden turns to the camera and says, my fellow Americans, 200,000 people have died. I, I was sort of saying like, is that really hitting the right notes? Because I really, um, 
I was thinking that a lot that, that a lot of people, especially in rural towns are saying like, I don't see any, I don't know anybody who's got infected by COVID, but I do know that I haven't been able to go to work. And I do know that like my unemployment checks are running out or like I can't even do unemployment because I don't know how that system works or whatever that is. That, that, that's definitely a reality. Um, uh, but on the sort of the notion that the Trump administration turned this over to the states, um, I think that would have been like almost, I, I personally think that could have been an okay approach if they had at the same time sort of armed the states with, you know, we're the federal government. We have all these resources. We started learning about this in January or whenever that, uh, you know, that uh, Bob Woodward interview uh, took place, right? Like, we can empower you with the knowledge, how you want to take that knowledge and, you know, do something with it to fit it to your states. I think that is a totally fine, uh, you know, a, approach to this. But instead, you kind of had a little bit of, yeah, like, we're not going to tell the states what to do. But you also had them saying, like, wear a mask or don't, whatever. Right. Uh, you know, this is no worse than the common cold. Like, you had all of this conflicting information um, where it, it wasn't really like we're empowering the states to have like a, a differentiated approach. That's why we're not doing anything at a federal level. And yet we agree that you need to take this seriously. It was the left is doing what the left does. They're just making this up. It's not a big deal. It's another hoax. It's some disease from China. Like, don't worry about it. Like it, it's a totally different thing to say that we kind of had this push and pull between those approaches because we really had one side and then and, you know and you can argue that it, it's really just a, a microcosm of how we do anything related to politics if i say yes you say no um but j just on that piece I, I guess i would challenge the notion that even though it has sort of devolved into states coming out with their own approaches um i don't think I think even if you had favored um, a states-based approach, you still could find tons of problems with how the administration handled the virus. I, I absolutely, I, I totally can see that point. If I didn't make that clear earlier, I, I think it was—it's really—it was a total abdication of responsibility at the national level. And I like how you put it. It's like we're armed with the the most resources, you know, obviously, <laughs> and the most knowledge again, obviously, and we should disseminate that knowledge and those resources in the best ways possible. And instead, what we've had is a lack of resources where states and, and cities and towns are really straining at, at their, you know, seems to, to, you know, provide basic services for their citizens. And not only a lack of knowledge, but unfortunately, an influx of disinformation and, and you know, factually incorrect, quote unquote, knowledge that came from you know the national administration. So again, I don't want to de-emphasize the failures at all, uh, but I do, my kind of general point was that it, it makes some sense for states to handle these things on their own and the different approaches are interesting. Again, neither one is particularly right, but uh, it, it has been fascinating to see how it's played out in these quote, quote unquote like red states or blue states. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. And then I guess, you know, just to, to, to put a bow on, on sort of your, your second point, um, which I think is an absolutely accurate description of, of sort of how two uh, very different segments of society, sort of the Republican and right and, and um, kind of the more liberal left were viewing the coronavirus. And, and I think it, it would be difficult not to suggest that a lot of it just has to do with 
the demographics of, um, you know, this was, this was really ravaging um, lower income, dense urban communities that were predominantly black or Hispanic and Latino. Um, and that, um, and, and really the timing of it. I mean, states like North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming really hadn't had, they didn't have the first wave um, that you had in New York and California. And so people, you know, rightly or wrongly are, are going to vote on their, their lived experiences in many ways. And the impacts on the economy, you know, we can talk about 200,000 deaths, um, the impacts on the economy, that's like 150 million people. And so uh, certainly, um, I think Democrats misjudged, you know, where to place the emphasis um, on, on the coronavirus. And I think there were opportunities to say that, like, look, even if we lift every restriction today, if people don't have the confidence that they're not going to get sick by going out into public, it may not change a lot of, um, of what's going on uh, economically. Um, you know, if a huge portion of the population is uh, employed through restaurant, travel, leisure, and that kind of stuff is just not coming back because at this point we don't have a vaccine. We don't have, um, you know, real, uh, you know, we don't have a cure, um, despite what, what the president might, might want you to believe, um, that those economic impacts are going to persist regardless of what Democrats, um, are kind of doing in, in many of these areas. Um, so, and, and then, and then I guess the last part would be, and now we're seeing the cases start to, to really surge in some of these parts of the country, um, that went very heavily for Donald Trump during the election. Um, but never really, you know, as I <laughs> circularly talking here, but never really experienced that first wave that that decimated some of the coastal areas. Yeah, and I, I think we, we're talking about this through a political lens, but it's because there are different political approaches to how to handle a crisis like this. But unfortunately, so much has become politicized about like the disease and, and science and basic safety measures themselves that... Uh, it's everything became politicized and like, you know, unfortunately per usual, it doesn't seem like we can agree on anything. And, you know, what we found is, you know, to your points where, you know, people in again, middle America, red States, whatever you want to call them are sitting back in March and April, not laughing at that would be a mischaracterization, but pointing to, you know, a governor like Cuomo or a governor like Newsom and saying, look, they're having the most draconian restrictions out of anywhere in the country and the most deaths out of anywhere in the country. Like, like, and it's one of those things where like chicken or the egg, where it's like, they're living in the most repressive society and they're dying the most. Like, this is like the total wrong way to handle it. But as we've seen proven over the course of these last six months is that the coronavirus doesn't see red states or blue states, Republicans or Democrats. It affects everyone equally. And it, it does affect people at different times. And again, I don't want to minimize your point of it has disproportionately affected certain populations, not necessarily due to you know the color of their skin or the language that they speak, but because of you know, our socioeconomic inequalities that exist in healthcare inequality that exists in our country. Uh, but coronavirus doesn't see any of these kind of false divisions that you know we debate about you know on Twitter and and on you know CNN and Fox News. Like it's not about that. Unfortunately, like I said, so much of this has become well, you know. 
you don't believe in science, <laughs> which might be a legitimate thing, or like you don't care about personal liberty. Again, like there are like legitimate arguments to be made here, but it's become so politicized that even wearing a mask or like trying to do basic things, which I think everyone in, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in North Dakota. I think everyone maybe there, there, there more than somewhere like Boston cares more about their fellow neighbor, right? But when it becomes such a political thing and you're, you're kind of staked in your corner, that you know, wearing a mask is taking away my individual freedom. It's being mandated by the government here. Now I'm not going to do it, even though it's it, doing so would help my neighbor, whom I profess to love, and I believe that you do love, right? So it's, I, and I think again, a lot of that fault is you know placed at the current administration, but I also think that kind of exists um, in our discourse in general. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> could definitely agree on that. I guess. Maybe one last hot take or, or something that I had been thinking about a little bit um, just with this sort of the concept of personal liberty. And, I, and I'm not sure um, if if you recall this or how much you recall this, but we'd sort of talked a little bit about, uh, you know, um, the coronavirus in comparison to uh, what happened in 9-11 and sort of the, this kind of a similar existential threat of terrorism, right? Um, and the, one of the pieces of the Bush, Bush administration's response um, was the Patriot Act, um, which basically was like a huge big brother, like, you know, we can kind of do whatever we want if we believe um, that sort of you as an individual have potentially have some connection to terrorism that included like, you know, without a charge, holding you in detention, potentially sending you to Guantanamo Bay, um, a, a lot of things that, um, as a sort of a progressive person in in that era, I was uh, obviously very young, so I didn't really understand a lot of what was going on. But I don't recall uh, certainly not much conservative pushback. I think there was a more of like a, a unified. Um, kind of acceptance of this policy, not, I'm not going to say a hundred percent, certainly people had issue with it, but um, you definitely didn't have like the, the people saying, Hey, this is especially not from the right saying that this is coming out affecting my personal Liberty. And, you know, you can argue, you can make some arguments that that may have been more, um, more extreme than some of the things that we're talking about. Uh, here with with regard to how the government could handle the coronavirus. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with everything you said. I, I just think like the equivalency, like theoretically would have been like the Trump administration to come out and be like, hey, that Patriot Act that we all look back on, we're kind of like, ah, I don't know that that was the best idea. We should do something similar here, right? Because like the time of crisis calls for it, right? So all the criticisms you just made of the Patriot Act, which I think are legitimate, are theoretically arguments not to give the government too much power to intervene in, you know, crisis scenarios. Yes, that's fair. Um, I would say that the Patriot Act was uh, even more of an extreme response um, that we largely accepted uh, yeah. to counter a threat, a more a, a similarly existential threat like terrorism, um, where we really couldn't put a finger on it, didn't exactly know where it was coming from. Um, but, but you could, right? Like, it, even though you, you couldn't, you could, right? You could put some faces to it and you could hold up nine, like the, the Twin Towers and you could say that these were real things and you could play those videos. The, the threat of uh, 
you know, the coronavirus is a little more insidious and it, it's harder to see. And I think that's why the Trump administration has tried so hard to point, to put Chinese faces and Asian faces on this because mm. it, can, it, it, it makes it maybe seem more real and like the enemy's out there, but it's not. Like the enemy is, is among us and it's, it's not, it's in us, right? And uh, that's, it's a harder thing. Like the Patriot Act, like you said, was not like certainly looking back on it was, a, a, in my opinion, not a great expansion of governmental powers, but at the time it was justified and people generally went along with it because, hey, like my, my safety, like there are people out there that could come and kill me and my family on my way to work, right? Uh, it's, this yeah. is a harder uh, crisis to confront. And we have a leader, in my opinion, that was far less equipped to confront it than certainly even George W. Bush was. Yeah, uh, that, that's a great point. And, and kind of as you were saying it, especially the sort of putting a face to it, it's s- similar, I guess, to many things in that this may be an infr- infringement on individual liberties. But if I'm really thinking about it, it's not an infringement on my individual liberties because I don't look like the people that they're going to be going after with this with this um yeah that that that's uh certainly well taken yeah and so like when we talk about and i've heard this discourse a lot and i again i don't totally disagree with this line of thinking of like this is the biggest restriction of civil liberties that you know we have had in x number of years since maybe world war ii or the war before that right uh it's because white people do not often get civil liberties restricted right and so and i don't necessarily blame them for being like i don't want my civil liberties restricted but it's, you know, it's maybe this cry that, you know, minority populations have been saying for, you know, hundreds of years of like, you know, our, all, all of these complaints that you had. It's like, you know, again, if we were being really empathetic here, we would be like, you know, white people that were complaining about their civil liberties being restricted would also be out there campaigning for like voting rights. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And like making yeah. a ballot box. And, uh, and, you know, minorities that have had their civil liberties restricted for you know, hundreds of years could also see the other side and be like, all right, well, I kind of understand that. Like, I don't like when the government, you know, restricts my rights. I want to, you know, when they're saying the government's restricting their rights, I understand that too. Uh, Again, I guess like sometimes I I feel like I get really pessimistic, but also this is like kind of, I I just watched, you know, the first part of Obama's interview on 60 Minutes and his book is called A Promised Land. And the interviewer was saying, Mr. President, doesn't it seem like we're farther away from a promised land than ever? And he was pretty much like, yeah, in some ways it does, but I still believe that it's out there. And so like, even when I get pessimistic, I do think you know, we can strive for more empathy to be able to see both sides and not continue to get drawn into these black and white debates over such a nuanced gray issue. So yeah, holding on, to holding on, going strong to the sound on the radio. And sometimes the singing is better for you than swimming so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I guess maybe the last thing I'll ask is what, you know, what can a given where we are today and potentially some of the, the seeds of doubt that um, president Trump has already sown, uh, you know, what can a Biden administration meaningfully do differently at this point? No, I mean, honestly, like it, that's, it's a brutal position for him to be put, I mean, again, he has to be put in this position. So I, I you know, sympathy for him, right? But yeah. like, it, it's you know, tough to come into this. And, you know, what's, what's interesting is he got asked that question at debates a couple, you know, the two debates, and he didn't say anything that much different than what theoretically Trump administration was saying or doing at that point, right? And Trump tried to point, point that out, but 
I think Biden's one of his whole cases, just like the tone of things, right? And in the fact that he's made it so such a point to be wearing a mask and having everyone around him wearing a mask and being like, you know, this isn't a political issue. Unfortunately, I, I think in a lot of ways, like the cat's out of the bag at this point, you know, like you can't put the milk, you know, back in the bottle. It's like, I, what's the line from Pineapple Express? The monkey doesn't go back in the bottle. Yeah, like, at this point, like, I think there are economic arguments to be made that like these last six months have been a sunk cost. And like, unfortunately, you know, the, the lockdown that we had in, in the spring, maybe it worked towards this one though. Right. It, I, it's just, it's really, really hard, you know, and, and, you know, to you know, speak from like a little bit of personal experience, you know, I was teaching at the time and they told us on March 13th that we'd be out for two weeks. And those two weeks were to make sure we could flatten the curve and the government was going to get a plan in place here in Massachusetts or nationally. And then we'd be back to school. You know, it's, it's November and my school's still not back in person, right? Like, and the restrictions that the governor, our governor Baker put in place in April haven't really relaxed that much. And so for him to like turn things back up now, I think is, is very frustrating to a lot of people because, you know, it made sense in the spring, but then it, it seemed to make less sense in, in the summer. And, and we personally got tired of it. I mean, I, you know, from personal experience, I didn't see anybody through, you know, March, April, May, nobody. But then at some point it was kind of like, well, I'm not gonna go the rest of my life without seeing anybody. Like we, we have to open it up a little bit. And it just felt like here in Massachusetts, I know I'm not answering your question. I will, I guess, eventually. It, it felt like when the numbers, when we did successfully flatten the curve and the numbers did decline like they did in June and July, and we still have these restrictions on us like a nanny state and we have the highest unemployment in the country in, in June and July, well, then at some point, like, I'm, I'm just not going to really believe you when you say that we, we need these restrictions because the numbers are not saying that. And so now when he comes back out and tries to re like, put in place these restrictions again, it's like, well, like, why should I put the restrictions in place now? You, you had them on there for six months and apparently they haven't worked according to you. So I think this is where a Biden administration has a hard time because, yeah, maybe uh, a national four to six week lockdown could actually kind of step like flatten the curve and, and stem the crisis until we get that vaccine in April. And, and then by spring and summer that we can go back to a more normalized lifestyle. But again, he hasn't been in charge, but if, if you've just had these restrictions in place forever and nothing's let up at some point, it's kind of like, well, I got to live my life at some point. And I think that's where he's in, he's in a really hard position. And economically, I don't think the country, I would say, not even that I don't think, I know the country can't afford another six week lockdown at this point, not to mention all of like the side effects that you don't see with mental health and not to get it, but you know, domestic violence and alcohol abuse and drug abuse and suicides and, and really just the, the mental health, which, you know, quote unquote, healthy people have to deal with of being inside or having kids that haven't, you know, played with their friends in months or haven't been to school or you can't go out and work because you have to be home with your kids. Like, there's just a lot of small things that have happened that, I, yeah, again, I don't know what, what Biden's able to do besides kind of change the tone and hope for a vaccine because all the reasons why you would put these restrictions back in place, well, you didn't, you never loosened the restrictions. So, like, coming in and saying, I'm going to put more restrictions in place is not a winning message at this point. Yeah. Uh, I, I think Fauci kind of agreed to as much It's like the nation is not going to be receptive to further lockdowns um, in general. And I think potentially part, part of it goes back to, um, 
you know, without an adequate support for understanding, you know, where do we have to do these measures and for how long? Um, and, and part of it is because some of this was just unknown, um, but also part of it is because we didn't have a unified approach, um, meant that areas that probably didn't need to go into severe lockdowns earlier on, uh, but potentially some in, some restrictions on interstate travel could have helped, um, <clears throat> didn't, you know, did lock down, put people on unemployment early, potentially too early, um, and are now going to really need some of those measures. But it's, as you said, cat's almost out of the bag at this point that you can't, uh, you know, that that's kind of like a one-time emergency breaker right. and you already, you already flipped it. Um, so if you never flipped it back on, it's really hard to, 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 to try and use that fail safe switch again. Um, I think, I think one of the things, and, and I guess, and then the other part is, you know, where the, the Trump administration, I think really let people down is that they didn't promote just kind of like a, a consensus understanding of what was actually going on. And so um, it's going to be difficult <laughs> in a, in an era where the president elect um, cannot even sort of begin his transition into the new office because the outgoing president is continuing to promote disinformation that sort of the election was stolen. Um, it's going to be very hard for uh, the Biden administration to kind of convince um, the public at large that they are doing everything sort of in the best interest of the, of, of everybody. I think that's one potential problem where I do see, uh, an avenue for, for a major improvement is one, you won't have, I mean, you'll still have more likely than not Trump continuing to tweet, um, you know, whatever nonsense he's been tweeting for, for the past nine months, but you won't have the president of the United States kind of spreading falsehoods. And I do think that that is important um, because there are kind of common sense measures that people can take short of being required to do anything uh, that we know sort of help stem the tide of this in, in April at one point um, that hopefully we'll see a little bit more of. And, and I think maybe the other piece is that he can put people in positions of power, uh, members of his coronavirus response team that won't necessarily be afraid of saying um, the truth and not just what Biden wants to hear. I think one of the things that um, that struck me throughout all of this is that, you know, Trump's major sort of campaign slogan has always been America first. But in many ways, um, his response in this case has always been kind of Trump first, like what's going to tarnish my image? What is going to uh, potentially harm my reelection chance. My strongest point is the economy. So damn everything else. I'm going to make sure um, that that, you know, for, for whatever that could continue to look like under this scenario, that's going to be the thing that I go for. Um, and I mean, even in, you know, you can certainly see that con continuing to happen here with why, why he's not conceding. It's, it's certainly a play for Trump and not really a play for the country, but um Oh, Jesus, I digress again. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I mean, I I, I think Biden's message was kind of like I'll I'll believe in the science, and I think that that does sound a little bit trivial. But I I, I am hopeful that that will be important um, because in so many ways, you know, the role of government 
beyond kind of just maintaining a few of, of, of kind of the rights of people to, uh, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness um, can be to, to act uh, to support um, or, or, you know, to kind of combat threats that individuals themselves are not really equipped to digest the information and, and make kind of the right decisions or the decisions that are the best for everybody. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. It's going to be very, very difficult. Um, there's really not much left to do from a restriction standpoint. Um, and so we're probably going to see more of the same, but hopefully in a more unified way. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think I just, we, we've both rambled for a while here, but I think we should wrap it up uh, by saying that I do think it, it is important and it might be subtle, but like the, the tone and the messages coming out of the White House in two months are going to be different. I do think that matters. And I, I hope that Biden does, you know, really go into some of these states and, and try to convince these people. He said he's going to do it and be a president for everybody. Well, I hope he kind of takes that tone and message to these people. Whether or not they're willing to hear it is, is totally up to them, but the, the least he can do is, is, is deliver that message to them. Um, with that said, is you know, we're still two months away from that. And um, a lot of damage can be done in two months and not to take any more shots at Trump. I mean, he doesn't need any more, but he hasn't been to a coronavirus task force meeting in five months. You know, he has, he's basically shut himself in except for like four trips golfing over the last week and done and done nothing but tweet. Like he, he's essentially totally abdicated his responsibility as like the commander in chief and like the leader of the country. So I do think it's going to be a, a grim couple months here. Uh, but to end on a positive note, the vaccine, whether it's Pfizer's or hopefully Moderna's, like those are coming and they're coming at a pace that has never been seen before. And it's a credit to um, all the scientists and the work that the government has done, but in, in, but also like all of the individuals that, you know, the previous record for vaccines are, is going to be absolutely shattered. And we're going to have, you know, hundreds of millions of doses ready to go within really a year and a half after the pandemic was, this virus was first discovered. So uh, yeah, I think in the short term, things don't look great. Uh, but again, knock on wood, hopefully, you know, come the spring, you know, things are starting to look up. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll sort of leave that right there. I won't say it's entirely a win for big government, but I, I, I think it's a, it is, it's a, a testament to what a public private partnership can really look like in a situation like this. Um, and it's, yeah, you're absolutely right. In, incredible pace. I think um, with that, maybe when we come back, we'll say a few words about uh, uh, the uh, sort of where we are today with um, with the end of the election. And then, uh, and then, yeah, we'll kick it over to the next time. When you can't do what you do, you do what you can. This ain't my fear, it's just a thought I'm wanting to share. Down here we fail, but don't break. Down here we understand. When you can't do what you do, you do what you can. So to wrap up the week, uh, as we had mentioned from the beginning, we'd be remiss not to talk about the developments or in some ways lack thereof that's happened in the presidential election since we last spoke. Uh, so we recorded last Friday night. And at that time, you know, we, we didn't, the end didn't really look like it was any more in sight than it had been on Tuesday night. And then of course, 
you know, I turn off my TV for the first time on Saturday morning and then I get a message on my phone while I'm out golfing being like, the AP has called a race. It's like, are you kidding me? I literally sat, the TV had not been turned off since like Tuesday afternoon. I go out one time and they call a race. Um, but so it's been called nationally by a number of different news outlets. Uh, president Biden is, I mean, uh, Vice President Biden is now President-elect Biden, uh, at least in many circles and is, is certain being treated that way. Uh, he's got a transition team all up and running. He's uh, taking daily meetings with, you know, his coronavirus task force. He's speaking with world leaders. The vast majority of countries around the world have, you know, reached out to congratulate him either in like personally or, you know, with official statements. So it seems as if much of the world, at least, and I, you know, imagine certainly most of the left has kind of moved on and is anticipating President-elect Biden being president in, 20, in two months. With that said, uh, much of our country and the right side of our country and much of the current administration is not quite on the same page with that and is not moving forward. I think he just tweeted today uh, that he, he says, I can see nothing. Like I was like <laughs> capital letters. Like I was like, uh, and again, it's, it would be funny if it wasn't so like sad and scary, uh, but like him continuing to tweet out these falsehoods and then being uh, echoed by his, his favorite news outlets uh, and then kind of retweeted. And then I'm sure you saw yesterday there was, you know, a, a pro-Trump, you know, march in Washington that devolved into violence because of the counter-protesters. Uh, so in, in that sense, like we're, we're no closer because, you know, the government, the U.S. government, I forget what the agency is called, but hasn't certified the election results yet. GSA, General Services. Yeah. yeah. Say it again. General Services Administration. Okay, yeah. So the GSA hasn't certified it yet. And because they haven't certified it yet, the current administration is not letting Biden's transition team, you know, talk with the people currently in the government. So the, you know, Dr. Fauci's, Dr. Burks. And, and again, these are two people in a, a mass of, you know, thousands of people that are critical to how the government functions. And instead, the administration seems to be purging the top levels of these administrations and refusing to allow anybody to talk to the Biden administration, which... Again, if you don't believe you have lost, I guess I get it. But at the same time, it's like, it's very much not putting the country first because we have this crisis that we've just spent, you know, the last 45 minutes or an hour, whatever it is talking about. And, and you know, we are reaching new daily highs in terms of cases and you're delaying the current, the incoming administration's ability to problem solve here. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that's my take of where things stand. Yeah, I'd I'd say that's that's largely right. I don't know if I would uh, agree that the counter protesters were the reason for the violence in in Washington D.C., but um, I think the larger point being that um, President Trump not having conceded the loss of the election um, is is kind of doing the country no favors. I think I heard one suggestion um, from. I think it was a Republican congressman, but I actually can't, can't remember his name, but, but essentially saying that like, there's really no harm in at least supporting the Biden transition and allowing things to play out in the courts. Like you don't need to transition. So um, one of the two of you is going to be president. Like, you know, we could just, uh, we, we could just kind of do these things in parallel. And I think, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really have a ton to say on this topic other than um, it, it's just kind of part and parcel for, for how president Trump has run his administration, which has, has unfortunately been sort of to his benefit 
more often than it has been necessarily for the for the company's benefit. Yeah, and maybe for the companies, just, the countries, but he treats it like a company. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like a thing. Freudian slip there. Yeah, um, yeah. So maybe this just becomes like uh, an unfortunate, like uh, kind of tragic comic weekly segment at the end you know how like before the election we had we would have segments of like oh where do you think the chances of the election win are now it'll kind of be like we'll do five minutes at the end of every episode of you know has president trump conceded yet (laughs) yeah (laughs) and we'll see how long this segment goes yeah (laughs) might be a while stay tuned folks all right until next week see ya Keep out. There's diamonds in the sidewalk, the gutters laugh.